Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. podcast and today we're going back into uh, looking at civil rights in America uh, in the 1940s during the Second World War and in the immediate aftermath. Previously uh, we talked about how civil rights advances had been possible during the war normally as a result of presidential action and the threat of uh, mass black walkouts in war industries as the result of uh, discrimination in working practices. But now we're going to look at the legacy of Jim Crow in the South and the threat of racial terrorism that black people in southern states dealt with on a regular and daily basis. As we previously discussed, white southern racist thinking rested on the belief or the hope that um, society in the southern states was largely unchangeable and that the racial status quo would forever persist. And the idea that there could be any change was an almost apocalyptic notion. In the southern states, institutional racism meant that white power controlled all the levers of state, from the police to courts to government, Um, and to uh, the legal profession, there were no black lawyers, black judges, or black policemen. So from the world perspective of a southern white in 1945-1946, it was entirely conceivable that the South would uh, remain uh, unchanged. The only real threat, of course, was the Constitution itself, which had been amended at the end of the Civil War to grant black people the right to vote. But there were all sorts of methods to circumvent this. Um, Poll taxes, for example. Literacy tests. And when those um, official means uh, didn't work, violence, um, the Ku Klux Klan, and other forms of paramilitary and non-paramilitary intimidation. Black people were well aware that the local clan members were normally police officers, judges and jurors who would never convict or arrest a white perpetrator of violence against a black person. 
So the system of subjugation of black people had two arms to it. There were official state Jim Crow laws and then unofficial paramilitary action uh, that was intimately connected to um, the lawmakers and the legislation itself. One of the totemic ideas of white racism in the South was the fear of miscegenation, um, that black men and white women would have sex, and the uh, ostensible um, racist assumption, the, ra the, the, the racist fear, I don't even want to call it a legitimate one, but the, uh, the notion that mixed-race children would be produced ostensibly was the source of the anxiety there. In previous decades, various um, racial and eugenicist uh, thinkers um, suggested that mixed-race children would be sort of mentally or physically in inferior in some way, obviously you know, a, a total nonsense as the entire science of uh, pseudoscience, shall we call it, of racial thinking uh, is. But the irony here is that uh, sexual relations between white men and black women in the South was a, a long-standing aspect of Southern life. And normally, coercive, or, uh, coercive sex or outright sexual violence and rape um, were the, um, the legacy of slavery, of course. Um, white men insisting on sexual favours from poor and legally um, defenceless uh, black women had existed throughout slavery, throughout the Reconstruction era, throughout the Jim Crow era, uh, and late into the, the, the 20th century. So mixed-race children were often produced by these uh, normally uh, violent acts against black women. However, it was the anxiety on the part of white men that black men would be more sexually virile, all these sort of uh, racist uh, assumptions about black men, or would be um, more sexually attractive to white women. These thoughts existed within a, a set of racist myths about the idea of the, the predatory, uh, criminal, rapist black male and the fair, virginal, unbespoilt southern belle. Uh, whose honour must be protected at all times. Now, when you think about the things like the murder of Emmett Till, and we'll, as we move through this talk on uh, week by week on civil rights, we'll look more at, uh, at Emmett Till, who was a, a young black boy from the north who was visiting relatives in the south and perhaps did absolutely nothing at all, but supposedly the justification for murdering him by two white racists is that he made some uh, comment or some suggestive remark to a, a white woman. The evidence actually suggests that he, that didn't even occur at all, that the, um, the person who accused him of all of this was, uh, was lying. But his murder existed within the context of these, uh, these views. Black men in the South, Emmett um, Till, who came from the North and was perhaps unfamiliar with the intensity of Southern racism, but black men who lived in the South knew full well uh, not to be familiar or to make any kind of even friendly comment to white women for the, uh, at the risk of these sorts of things occurring. And whilst the overall rate of lynchings had gone down, there were 19 between 1940 and 1944, uh, compared to 72 between 1930 and 1934, and 42 between 1935 and 1939. Um, but the uh, black people knew full well 
that uh, any sense of them being an uppity Negro uh, could easily result in serious violent retaliation. And of course, if any sexual impropriety was alleged against a black man, he would be facing an all-white jury and there would be virtually no chance of getting any kind of justice whatsoever. And I think that part of the ideology of uh, the constructed ideology of gender in the South is based around um, the the notion of, or perhaps even in some ways, the the myth of uh, small Southern white communities existing on plantations with large numbers of slaves. And once those slaves are freed, the, there is a fear that the tables are somehow turned and that white communities live in some kind of siege mentality, some sort of uh, siege uh, conditions uh, surrounded by a sea of hostile black people. This is the, the fear and the, the, and the anxiety that sort of manifest themselves in all these racist ideas. Of course, the reality it was uh, after emancipation was far different that black people were emancipated into poverty, and therefore, as a result, they don't have anywhere near the kind of economic power, uh, political power, uh, to organise and become any kind of credible threat to white people whatsoever. They're busy uh, having to uh, really cope with the legacy of slavery, and that meant for most of them returning to the kind of work they'd previously done uh, although now paid a, a small, as small as possible, stipend for their labours. The first flowerings of resistance in the South were there, though. Uh, one example would be the development of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, uh, a forerunner to CORE and the Freedom Rides. The Fellowship of Reconciliation was a, uh, a non-violent pacifist group that believed in uh, racial justice and was encouraged by the Supreme Court's decision to uh, overturn segregation in interstate travel. Um, so they began to test this in 1947 in the more northerly of the former Confederate states. Bayard Rustin, who led these efforts, was arrested, uh, convicted, sent to jail, um, and wound up working on the chain gang for his troubles. Medgar Evers, in 1947, um, attempted to cast a vote in uh, Mississippi. Um, he turned up in his uh, uniform, a former soldier, um, and he was threatened with uh, violence. He was uh, threatened at gunpoint uh, if he cast a vote, and eventually had to flee for his life. But in 1946, there was a high-profile murder of five black people, three men and two women, in Georgia, who were killed uh, when they attempted to cast a vote. And to violent uh, southern racists, the logic was inevitable, that if black people began to vote, they would begin to control the levers of power, and they would begin to be able to put their own representatives in office, and then white power and white privilege would be stripped away uh, from white people in the South, particularly in parts of the South where they felt they were outnumbered by black people, and then the control that white people had in the South would be gone. This fixed world that white uh, supremacists in the South saw in 1945 
um, they believed was imperiled, under threat, and they needed to fight in order to control it. One of the powerful myths that the Confederacy had gifted to Southern whites was the idea that they were in some ways the embattled underdog, the, the rebels, quite literally, uh, that they were fighting against threats to their survival all round, from blacks within the South and from do-gooding Northern Yankees who were looking to uh, append ways of life that they couldn't understand or imagine. That once again, the inf interfering federal government was meddling in things that were none of its concern. And Southern white politicians were adept at speaking in explicit terms to their white constituency about the question of race. Uh, Eugene Talmadge, for example, when he was elected governor of Georgia in 1946, um, said that no Negro will vote in Georgia for the next four years. And what he was explicitly saying there was that the South, that Georgia particularly, uh, under his watch, would defy the Constitution. It would defy the executive. It would defy the Supreme Court. Which is quite a, an epic challenge to the authority of the government. However, the fact that um, people like Talmadge uh, gambled on this being successful uh, was borne out by federal inaction uh, up until really the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in 1964 and 65 respectively. What it didn't do was dampen amongst black people the desire for um, organisation, um, advancement and um, the struggle for civil rights. Black people continued to register to vote. They continued to uh, challenge uh, discrimination in the workplace. They continued to join trade unions. Um, they continued to uh, present to the um, federal and supreme courts challenges to um, the Jim Crow laws and they continued to use the uh, US Constitution and its amendments in order to... Uh How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. ...bolster their cause. I suppose, put simply, however savage and brutal white violence against black people was in the southern states after World War II, it was also ineffective. One key reason for this was a dramatic improvement in literacy amongst black people in the South. In 1880, 70% of black school children were illiterate. In 1910, that had fallen to 31%. And by 1945, it had fallen to 11%. Now, the story in the North is slightly different. Um, Though black protest had been violently subjugated for the most part in the South, uh, in the North... It was far more open. The the Congress of Racial Equality that was founded in 1942 um, was organising sit-ins that we normally associate in the South with like the Greensboro, uh, Woolworth County sit-ins. Um, these were being organised in the North in as early as 1943. The first that is on record is, was in Chicago. The Great Migration earlier in the 20th century of black people um, up the uh, Mississippi River uh, all the way to the northern states had resulted in large accumulations of black populations in Chicago and other northern cities. Uh, And this meant that there was likely to be, and indeed it turned out to be, uh, greater levels of black political activism uh, in those areas. The NAACP, uh, the uh, Congress on Racial Equality, and other groups uh, forced the Chicago Tribune to stop um, negatively race labeling um, black people in stories um, normally pertaining to crimes. By 1947, quite a significant achievement had been made in Chicago about the manner in which black people were represented in the media and the narrative that was created about black people, the association of black people and crime, um, is a long-standing trope within uh, American discourses and American uh, popular culture and American news. And it was a way of justifying police violence against black people and also a way of creating a sufficiently frightened white populace who would then be more than happy to listen to political leaders and public intellectuals that uh, demanded that the government be more tough on crime, tough on black people, in essence. And at the same time, um, hate literature, the sorts of publications by things like the Ku Klux Klan, was banned in Chicago. This was a, perhaps quite an easy sell in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War that um, publications with racist or fascist views were um, seen as uh, completely morally unacceptable given the conflict that America had just emerged from. 
Now, a while back, I did a podcast on the uh, growth of suburbia in post-war America and the racist politics and practices that surrounded that, uh, particularly that of the restrictive covenant. Uh, The Supreme Court in 1948 um, said that restrictive covenants, which were private agreements used by uh, white people, i.e. a white home vendor, a seller of a home, and the white purchaser of a home, or uh, a a broker in the middle, um, that there could not be a secret agreement between those people to only sell to white people. Um, or a secret agreement amongst uh, neighbours that nobody in the neighbourhood, would, when selling a house, would sell it to uh, a non-white person. These agreements were uh, unlawful, and yet white suburbia emerged nonetheless. And normally, when we're talking about the civil rights movement, the way it's taught in schools, I'm speaking here from a UK perspective, um, it might be entirely different here in America, that the key battlegrounds are always looked as uh, education and transport and the desegregation of public spaces. But one of the first key battlegrounds, really, is housing. Black people who lived in overcrowded, poorly maintained uh, districts in uh, northern and southern cities um, were becoming concentrated there in record numbers, finding it hard to find uh, decent housing and the problem was exacerbated by banks and other mortgage lenders uh, by the policy of redlining, uh, which meant that entire uh, neighbourhoods in cities, particularly suburban cities, would be blocked off from black people. Any black person wanting to buy a home in those areas would not be offered a home loan. Black people also had problems um, from the policies of developers, who wouldn't want to sell to uh, black people, believing that other white customers wouldn't want a black family living next to them. There was um, institutional racism on the part of city officials who um, changed uh, zoning restrictions um, that limited low-cost housing and meant that only expensive houses, which were going to be uh, affordable to white people who had access to better credit, than black people uh, would it be built in particular areas. Builders that um, did build um, low-cost housing demanded public subsidies. Um, They said that um, construction was expensive and if you wanted cheap housing, then the public coffer had to pay for it. And local officials would often say, well, I'm not subsidising your building company so that you can build homes for black people in a neighbourhood for white folks who are going to vote for me. It was the informality and the secretiveness of these covenants and agreements and ploys uh, that left the federal government with um, a a difficulty in in how to tackle it. And it was only really the federal government that could do anything about it. Interior Secretary Harold Ikes controlled the housing division of the Public Works Administration until 1946. And he attempted to promote some fairly liberal policies uh, about race relations. But Ikes was confronted by widespread anger and hostility about the uh, possibility of black people moving into white neighbourhoods. And there were limitations, even to a fairly liberal politician, uh, to what could be uh, achieved. 
And here also we see the kind of the intersections of class and race in America. Ike's feared uh, the political backlash that would come about if he built uh, public housing for poor black people in wealthy white areas. Um, it was as much that w uh, white people didn't want poor people living next to them as well as the fact that they were black too. There were uh, there was the neighbourhood composition rule that was developed which said that public housing for black people uh, could only happen in areas that were predominantly black anyway. So poor black people uh, had to be provided for in areas that were uh, that had a high proportion of black people to start with. And here we see a different kind of segregation. There's a, a an official uh, legal um, juridical uh, segregation happening in the South. Parks are by law segregated between black and white. Now in the North there is a kind of a social segregation that black people have black neighbourhoods and white people have white neighbourhoods. And of course the economics of it lead to uh, inequality. White people that are given credit and can afford to live in nice suburbia where there's plenty of space and resources get to do so. Uh, black people who have to rely on public housing disproportionately, who are poorer, wind up uh, having these housing projects built in uh, black districts, predominantly black districts, and therefore overcrowding occurs, along with all its attendant um, pressure on resources uh, and amenities. The Federal Housing Administration, which uh, gave out billions of dollars in low-cost mortgage loans in the late 1940s, uh, underwrote the suburban expansion um, of, that, of the era, the, the massive growth in um, suburbs that ringed, uh, circled uh, various uh, cities, um, made sure that uh, black people, also Jews and uh, Latino people, were kept out of this process um, and that it meant that the white flight from the cities, white people trying to get away from their uh, black neighbours, were facilitated by federal government action, federal government uh, loans and allocations of cheap money helped to create a de facto segregation in the northern states. And the birth of the ghettos really is a thing of the mid-1940s. Large ghettos within uh, cities um, that became notorious for urban unrest by the 1960s had not really existed prior to the Second World War. They were a process, um, they were part of the process of white flight and part of the process of uh, housing policy from 1945 onwards. If you look at the case of Chicago, uh, in Chicago, uh, the number of white people between 1940 and 1950 uh, declined slightly. Um, but the number of dwelling units that were occupied by white people increased by about 10%. So the, um, the number of um, white people um, declined by 0.1% in that period. And the number of uh, houses went up by 10%. During that time, the number of black people in Chicago increased by 80.5%. This is mainly due to southern migration. 
they occupied 72.3% more units, um, houses, from um, flats and that kind of thing, from 19, uh, than in 1940. So that's an 80.5% increase in people and a 72.3% increase in property inhabited. During that period, the percentage of uh, non-white people in overcrowded uh, accommodation jumped from 19% to 24%, and the number of uh, units that had um, no private bath facilities uh, increased by 36,248. Um, now, the conditions were obviously insanitary. Rats were a fairly regular part of life, as were fire hazards. Between 1947 and 1953, in the Chicago slums alone, 180 slum dwellers, which included 63 children, were killed by fire. And the captive nature of the market for um, accommodation for black people meant that they actually had to pay more for the privilege. And rents were between 10 and 25% higher than those paid by white people for the comparative uh, level of shelter. Now, I've gone and thrown quite a lot of stats there at you today, and if you want to check any of them, you can look in Arnold R. Hirsch's Making the Second Ghetto, Race and Housing in Chicago, 1940 to 1960, which um, is an excellent read. I'm going to continue throughout the week with more on uh, civil rights and the development of American society in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. hope you found this useful. Do check us out on Patreon. Give us a good write-up on iTunes, and I'll catch you on the next podcast. All the best. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.